As we come together this morning, I'm guessing that some of you will love this question that I'm going to ask, and some of you could probably care less. So as we gather here this morning, just indulge me a few moments. I want to ask you, what is your favorite superhero? All right, so just go ahead and picture that person or that superhero in your mind a little bit. Are you a Superman kind of person? Are you a Wonder Woman kind of person? Are you an Incredible Hulk kind of person? Are you a Flash kind of person or Iron Man or Batman? I was kind of surprised this morning, one of our earlier services, one of the, actually one of our early morning ones with the choir members, I was kind of surprised when, as I mentioned the Hulk, a number of them kind of responded with great joy, which I would not have put those two things together, but that's okay. Uh, I don't know which one of those might be your favorite. Uh, For me, I would have to say it might be even a little bit embarrassing to admit as a father of three and married husband and all those things, probably my favorite superhero is Spider-Man. And I probably can't even give you a really good answer for that. I mean, he's not the most grand superhero, but I think he's my favorite because he's the earliest one I can remember in my life. And I kind of like his personality and kind of quirky and kind of funny and all of those kinds of things. You may not be a really large superhero fan. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But I think they're fascinating at least for one reason. And that is because they can do things that you and I as mere mortals cannot do. And they can do them because it did not come about of their own effort. There was something that happened to them most of the time or a gift they were given or maybe they were born that way. And what they do with those gifts of supernatural ability, that's up to them. But in most cases, they didn't earn it themselves. So when it comes to something like flying, we can't just make ourselves fly. I mean, I remember being a kid, I tried to make myself fly. I would think in my mind and like try to overcome whatever's in front of me, but I never was able to fly as hard as I tried I can't fly. I always wanted to have superhuman strength as a kid, but no matter how hard I tried to, you know, really concentrate on something and maybe make myself stronger than what I was, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do it. No matter how fast I wanted to be, I was never going to be like Flash, no matter how hard, no matter how much effort I gave to it. And yet superheroes, by the nature of who they are, it's not because they tried harder that they're superheroes, it's because Something happened to them. They had some abilities, some gift to be able to do things that you and I on our own cannot do, no matter how hard we try. I bring that up with us here this morning because we are in a series that we are calling Grace. It does a body good. And in this series, we are not looking at supernatural heroes, but we are looking at a heart that has been supernaturally changed by God versus a heart in which we just give more moral effort. It is the difference between a heart that is literally changed and transformed supernaturally by God through God's love and God's grace versus a heart that just tries harder on its own to be good or to be moral or to be more kind or just fill in the blank. And when it comes to God's grace, it is not something you and I can earn. It is a gift that is given to us. We can appreciate God's grace. We can respond to God's grace, but we can't make it happen for ourselves. It comes as a gift to us. Only when we receive God's grace as a gift do we find our hearts beginning to be changed in a supernatural way. And in fact, you might even be able to think in your own life a little bit of people that you have run into, and there's something that's just different about them. There is something about them that you're like, there's no way you in your own human effort would be able to come up with that or be able to respond in that way. So think for just a moment, maybe you've encountered these kind of people. Maybe you've encountered that person who is incredibly sick, 
They've had all these awful things happen to them, and yet when you look at them and see them, they are genuinely, they're not making it up, they're genuinely filled with joy. And you look at that person and you say, how can that be? How can they be filled with joy when they've got all this awful stuff that is going on? Maybe you've met somebody who seems incredibly grateful even when their life is falling apart around them, and yet they are genuinely grateful for what they have, literally each breath that they take. And you look at them and you say, how did you do that? How are you able to get a heart where you are genuinely grateful even all this awful stuff around you is happening? You might know somebody who, frankly, has had awful things happen to them. Maybe they suffered abuse. Maybe they were treated unkindly, unfairly in life, and yet they don't respond all the time with anger, even though they probably should or would have every excuse to do so. And you look at them and you say, how are you at peace? How are you okay despite what you've had to endure? How is that possible? Those are marks of a supernaturally changed heart. Those are marks of of something beyond our own effort that is at work. They're the marks of grace and living that grace out in our lives together. That's really what this entire sermon series is about. That through God's grace, we are genuinely forgiving people. We don't just try to forgive, we actually do. That through God's grace, we are genuinely kind people. We're not just a little nicer. We're genuinely kind. That through God's grace, we are genuinely loving people. There is something about God's grace as a gift to us that changes us when we genuinely receive it. And so today, we are looking at the topic of peace. And it's interesting, anytime you look in Scripture at these marks of grace, these evidences of God's grace in our life of a supernaturally changed heart, very frequently you'll find this item of peace lifted up as an evidence of God's grace. So if you look in Hebrews 12 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 or Romans chapter 1, in all of those places, peace is lifted. Except peace is one of those words, much like kindness, that when we lift it up, we very often fail to realize what's really going on with it. So we're going to dive into that here this morning. And as we explore peace, we're just going to do two things. Our time together is going to be very simple. We're going to look together at what is God's peace, and then we're going to look at how we can cultivate that peace in our lives. So that's it. God, what is, the great, what is the peace that you're talking about? How do we cultivate that peace in our lives together? First of all, what are we even talking about when we mention peace? Well, if you have your Bibles with you or your smartphones, I want to invite you to look up Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And Colossians is in the book, is in the New Testament part of the Bible. And this might not help you a whole lot, but I still remember this. When I was a kid, somebody taught me the phrase, go eat popcorn. And that's a helpful phrase because it reminds me of the order of the New Testament books where you ultimately find Colossians because go eat popcorn reminds me that G is for Galatians, E is for Ephesians, P is for Philippians, C is for Colossians. That helps me keep those books of the Bible in a particular order. So if you've never heard that, maybe that's not helpful. It's helpful to me. But I do want to invite you to find Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 of the New Testament, and this is what it says. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Again, this is another one of those words that when we read it in English, we miss part of the wallop that is being shared with us. Just like kindness is way more than being nice, peace, when it is used here in Scripture, means way more than the absence of war or violence or way more than being gentle 
Uh, there's no sense of weakness that comes with it, yet we might not catch that when we look at it in English. And I appreciate the way different scholars have put it and different commentators. One of them said this, and I find great value in this definition of peace or getting out what God's peace is about. Godly peace involves not a removal from all conflict, but a centeredness that comes from knowing that in the new humanity, God is in control of all. A centeredness that comes from knowing that in the new humanity, Christ is in control of all. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the story or the book or the movie found in Pride and Prejudice. But in general, it is the story of five sisters in the Bennett family. And at one point in the story, one of the sisters gets engaged to be married. And that sister, because she loves her other sisters, goes to one of her other sisters and she says to her, I wish you could find and have the same love and the same happiness that I have in finding this person to marry. When the one sister says that to the other, <clears throat> the other sister does not say, oh yeah, sister, you're right. I hope I find just that one right guy that's going to make my life perfect and then I will be happy. Nor does that other sister say, no, 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 sister, I am a strong, independent woman. I don't need any man to make me happy. I control my own destiny. She doesn't offer either one of those responses. Instead, this other sister says to the sister getting married, sister, if you were to give me 40 such men to choose from, I could never be so happy as you until I have your disposition, your goodness, your heart. Until then, I will never have your happiness. What is she saying there? She is saying happiness is not a matter of circumstances. It doesn't matter if she has 40 men to choose from or none. It is not the circumstances that are going to give her the happiness. Instead, happiness is a condition of the heart. Happiness is found in our disposition and what's going on inside of us. Her happiness was not going to be dependent on what was going around out there. Her happiness was going to be dependent on what was going on in here. And this is a profound matter that I want to make sure we get here this morning. It goes totally against our instincts. Circumstances might be the occasion for a loss of peace, but it cannot be the cause of a lack of peace. A true lack of peace in our life is always going to come when there's a disposition brokenness in our own heart and our own lives. It never ultimately can be dependent on just the circumstances around us. That is what Paul is trying to tell us here this morning. Colossians 3.15 when he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Very similarly in Philippians chapter 4 verse 7, it says, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we look at passages of scripture such as these or verses of scripture, we start to learn about the nature, the supernatural nature of God's grace and specifically God's peace in that grace. And here's a couple things I want us to notice. First of all, peace is not a general confidence that we own. Instead, it's a living power that comes into our lives. Very often when we think about peace, we don't often associate it as being something powerful. And yet, when we look in Scripture, we find that peace is an incredibly powerful thing. For example, in Colossians 3.15 and 1 Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, we see a couple words that are given, a couple verbs 
But in the English translations, again, we don't catch the full impact of how powerful these words are. So when it says something like, let the peace of God guard your heart, like it says in Philippians 4, 7, what it's literally saying is let that peace march around the ramparts of your heart, literally like a guard, literally warding off whatever attackers may be coming your way. So one of the images that comes to mind for me are the palace guards at the Buckingham Palace literally marching around it on the lookout. They're going to make sure that nobody does any harm. They're on the active lookout to make sure that peace stays in place. They're active. They're moving. There's a sense of power to that. At the same time in Colossians 3.15, it says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The word for rule is literally our English word for umpire. Umpires should be on our minds a little bit right now. Today are the championship, is the championship game for the Little League World Series. We've been hearing about baseball players and umpires for a number of weeks now. In ancient days, people got even more worked up than they do today. And so an umpire had to rule a game with an iron fist. They had to throw out the troublemakers who came their way. And so there's this sense of toughness even that's found in this notion of peace. That's the idea that's being shared with us. It's not a vague, sentimental, outer condition of just being nice and kind and you know, a generic kind of thing. There is a power of living actively into it. It rules, it dominates, it guards our hearts. It's a living thing. That's a very different picture of peace than what you and I often think about of just an absence of war or an absence of conflict. That's one notion of God's peace. Here's a second notion of God's peace, that the peace of God, it's not ruled by circumstance is out there, it is ruled from within. I don't know if you remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 27. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So if we feel peaceful at one moment and then we go through a few more moments of the day and suddenly we don't feel that peace, That is a worldly sense of peace because it is fleeting. It is not remaining. I want to ask you for a moment just to think about two different objects. Think about a mirror and think about the moon. And the moon might be the easier one to think about because we just came through this week where we were talking about the eclipse. But neither a mirror or the moon has any power on its own to shine forth or to bring illumination forth. The only way that you see light from a mirror is if it's reflecting something else. Likewise, the moon has no light of its own. It just reflects the light of the sun. There's no natural power within either one of those. Our natural hearts are the same way. Our natural hearts on their own are only ever going to reflect that which is going on around us. So in our natural hearts on our own, if our life is falling apart and circumstances are bad our hearts will reflect no peace. At the same time, if life is good and we feel like we've just encountered some great health or got a job promotion or something wonderful has happened, our hearts tend to reflect that. But God is saying peaceful circumstances are peaceful condition of the heart. It's not based on those circumstances. It comes from within. So in essence, the peace found in our hearts is more like the peace that you find from the sun which no matter what happens around the sun, the sun is going to continue to shine. We don't just reflect what's going on around us. It comes from within that no matter what is occurring, that peace is still going to come forth. When God's peace rules in our hearts, when God's peace guards our hearts, it doesn't matter what's going on out here. It doesn't matter what stresses I'm facing. We're still gonna have peace because it's not based on those outward things. 
The other thing about peace to understand is this. True peace comes from Christ alone. Let me be incredibly clear here. We do not develop this peace on our own just by trying harder. There is a supernatural phenomenon that's going on here that when we join our lives in union with Christ, we will then encounter the peace that only Christ can give. Some of you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I showed you a video clip of Tim Shaw. Tim Shaw used to play football in the National Football League with the Tennessee Titans, but he had to retire due to ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Few people better exemplify to me what it means to live in the peace of Christ than Tim Shaw. He could be, we could argue, he even should be devastated by this disease. He literally can barely walk anymore after having been a professional athlete most of his life. And yet when you see him or when you talk to him, there is a genuine joy that emanates from him. There's a genuine sense of peace that emanates from him. Why? Because his identity comes from Christ. He is not happy or sad, peace-filled or not peace-filled based on the circumstances or whatever he's encountering. God is at work within him, giving him peace no matter what he's facing. It's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.12 that he would be content, he would be at peace whether he was hungry or full, whether he was rich or poor. It's why we can say we will be content in all things, whether we have ALS or not whether we're in line with lots of traffic or not, whether we are sick or not, whether we have pimples or not, whether our car breaks down or not, whether we get an A on a test or fail a test, whether we encounter hurricanes or not, whether we encounter cancer or not, in all things we will be content at peace if our hearts are in Christ. Is that the case for us? Do we right now find ourselves at peace or are we feeling like our lives are just so stress-filled and anxiety-ridden and we just feel no sense of peace in our lives? God's peace is a powerful, powerful thing. And one of the things that's interesting is even if you're not overly interested in God, I would think that right now in our crazy, chaotic, so busy world, that we would love to find this kind of peace that we're talking about here this morning. And so the question might be raised in our mind, how do I find this peace? How do I live into this supernatural peace? Because who wouldn't want to experience that with everything that's happening? How do we get to fill in and live in God's supernatural peace? Well, very three, three ways, very simple, very pragmatic that I want to give you here this morning. To experience God's grace and peace, we first need to get the grace, but then there's three things I would say we can do. Think Dig, look. That's simple. Think, dig, look. Let's look at each one of those for just a moment. What do we mean by think in order to receive God's peace? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, again, if you have your Bibles, it says this. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So this is Paul's way of saying, use your mind, use logic, think. Paul's saying, if what I am telling you is true, Think it out for your lives and live in light of that reality. See if it is true. And if it is true, live in the light of those implications. Think. Don't do anything first. Just just think. Look at this reality. That is the opposite of what our world often tells us to do. If we are seeking to find peace or to deal with anxiety and stress, usually what our society or world will say is something like, well, you should get a self-help book. 
You should go see a counselor. You should watch a show or listen to this speaker. You should learn some relaxation techniques. Go buy good housekeeping or Vanity Fair or something like that, but do one of those things. That's not what Paul's encouraging us to do here this morning. He's saying, think. What are the big components of life that we should be considering? What's, What's important for life? What's the meaning of life? And once we start to ask those questions, it changes our perspective on the world. Remember, in our world, the first thing our world says is, if you are anxious, do a technique. Learn how to properly breathe. Get a massage. Go to that therapist. Go on a vacation. Do something. The world says you start by doing, but the Bible tells us the opposite. The Bible says we are created by a God who wants to be in relationship with us. And this God loves us so much that God sent his only son to come so that we might have a right relationship with God. If we believe that, then think that out. Think of the implications that if that is true, what does it mean that I serve a God who would go to any length to be in relationship with me? And once the implications of that new reality start to sink into our heart and into our mind, then we'll start to gain a perspective that will let us live into God's peace. We're not going to have that peace all on our own. We think about it. We reflect on it. We dwell on it. Reminds me a little bit of one of the key theme verses we use with our vision of transformation in Christ, changing lives inside and out. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think, contemplate, get God's mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Think, contemplate. Dwell on those implications. And then, then you'll start to experience a mindset that will allow you to live into God's peace. So first we think, second we dig. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, it says this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Put to death here is not going to surprise you. It means literally to kill off. Well, what are we called to kill off in our life? We're given a long list here. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Then we go to verse 8. We get even more things that we're supposed to kill off. Anger, malice, slander, filthy language. But what's the underlying cause of all of those things? Right in the middle of verse 5 are two key words that are so easy for us to overlook. Again, especially in the English. Look for a moment at the term evil desires. Look at those two words, evil desires. The word here for desire in the Greek is a Greek word called epithumia. It is a hard word to translate into the English because there is no English equivalent, equivalent. But essentially what it means is this. It means to have an epa desire, a mega desire, an over desire, an incredible desire, an abundant desire for something. So when we translate it as just evil desires, we naturally think it means a desire for something evil. And of course, what else would we think? That's, that's what's written before us. To have an evil desire, what you would think is to desire something evil. But I appreciate the point that Keller makes on this when he says that's actually not what it means at all. It is not talking about an ordinary desire for something that's evil. It's actually talking about an over-desire for something good that leads to evil. 
I doubt that many of us wake up each day desiring solely to do something awful. I doubt many of us wake up saying, I desire to kill other people, or I want to see how many people I can rob today. We don't desire those things very often, but what we do desire are good things that we elevate to ultimate things. So the point then is that the problem with our heart is more often it's not a desire, it's not an ordinary desire for bad things. It is an over-desire for good things, which leads to what Colossians 3, 5 mentions, idolatry. Overall, what Paul is saying here is kill off the over-desires in your heart that are going to lead to idolatry and ultimately lead to a lack of peace. If you want to know what your idol is, if we want to know what our idol is, We just have to ask ourselves this question. What is the one thing in my life right now that if I lost it, it would make me not want to go on? What is the one thing in my life right now that if I lost it, it would make me not even want to go on? That is what we worship. That is our God. That is what we value the most. And every single one of us has competing alternate saviors in our life. And we have to do the hard work of digging down and finding out what they are or we'll never experience the peace that only comes from Christ rather than those false idols that we tend to worship in our lives. I could give you a whole bunch of different examples here this morning, but I only want to give you one as we think through this whole idea. Given the current climate that we find ourselves in our country right now, I want to look at this example of racism. Now, we know this, that There's nothing wrong with affirming who God made us to be. In fact, we should celebrate who God physically has made us to be. That is a good thing. That is a wonderful thing. But the problem comes when we make our race the ultimate thing. And when we make race the ultimate thing, then awful things begin to happen in our world, like what happened in Charlottesville a few weeks ago. So our race under Christ is a good thing, a fine thing. But when we impose our race over Christ, then we have a problem. When we have an over-desire of our race, then we have a problem. So I want to ask you to do me a favor this morning. And wherever we are here watching online, I literally want to ask you to do this for just a moment. Would you close your eyes? So go ahead and do that. Just close your eyes. And in your mind, in your soul, in your heart, I want you to pull up the mental picture of Jesus that you have. So maybe it's a picture of Jesus you've seen somewhere. Maybe it's it's something that you've made up in your own mind. But literally right now, with your eyes closed, so you can really focus on this, keep your eyes closed. What do you see when you look at the face of Jesus? And think about that for just a moment. Be picturing literally who you see or what you see with the face of Jesus. Now, as you are holding on to that picture, I want to ask you to open your eyes and look up on screen. And I wonder which Jesus most closely resembles what you are just picturing. If you are like me, I'm guessing that you are picturing one of the Jesuses on the left-hand side, an Anglo-Saxon Jesus. But the reality is Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. And so even without thinking about it, even not even on purpose, we tend to impose our race over Jesus rather than having Jesus be imposed over our race. I bring this up because if it bothers us that Jesus was a Middle Eastern man rather than an American, then we have some digging to do to examine in our own hearts. 
Now, that's just one issue of racism. We could do it on any, a whole host of other topics. So we think and we dig to discover God's peace. And then the third thing we do is we look. Verse 5 tells us we need to kill off our evil desires. But notice, verse 5 only comes after one of those key words in Scripture, the word, therefore. Anytime we see therefore in Scripture, it's sort of that neon sign to stop, to pause, to take note of what's going on. And in this case, the therefore comes after verses 1 to 4. And what are we told in verses 1 to 4? Look to Christ. But here's what's interesting. If you read verses 1 through 4 very carefully, you'll notice it's not just that Jesus is risen in the present tense. It also says we have died with Jesus and been raised again. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ. I want you to hear the past tense there. Because if we're reading it, it should sound a little bit odd to our ears. It would make more sense to hear you believed in Jesus and therefore someday in the future you'll be raised up again to new life. And that would be a happy thought. It would be good to think, hey, something better is coming along. It would give us hope for the future. But that is not what the scripture says. It says, look, I want you to set your mind and heart on the fact that you have already died, past tense. And because you've already died, now you are raised up into new life in Christ. And once you are raised up into new life in Christ, then you will have the power to cast out those drives and those demands on your hearts and those powers that lead you into idolatry. And once you then learn that and realize you've already been raised and you cast those other things away, then you can find the peace that only comes from the Christ that you've already surrendered your life to. That is what Paul is trying to share with us here this morning. And in verse 3 then, we hear the most practical way of understanding or looking at God for this peace. In chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We've already died. Think about that reality. Reflect on that reality. Meditate on it until we begin to be dazzled by it. And then piece by piece, as we realize that reality and it sinks into our heart, piece by piece by piece, the peace that God gives will again fill our hearts no matter what we're facing in the world, no matter what circumstances, however broken they are, are coming our way. It's not very often we stop and think, wait a minute, for those of us who've already given our life to Christ, I've, I've already died. Those old ways are gone, and in Christ I experience the new. This is how we do it. So that to experience God's peace, we must let our lives get caught up in the greater grand life of Jesus Christ himself. I want to ask you to think about it this way for just a moment. If you are an English person, give me just a little bit of grace as I walk you through this. But any great story, any great adventure has a lot of similar elements within it. For example, in most stories, you have the main character who's just an ordinary average person. They're going along, minding their business day after day until one day something different, something extraordinary happens to them to take them out of their normal place of life to a different place, to a different time, whatever it might be. And when they're transported to that different place in that different time, they realize they are caught up into a bigger story than themselves. And usually there are forces of good and forces of evil. And then somebody comes along and sacrifices their life and almost everybody is saved or maybe everyone is saved. And then that person comes back from this grand adventure in the story and they try to get back into their own life going through the normal routine of life. Except now that person is different. And how are they different? They're braver they're sweeter, they're happier, they're more easily moved, they're more noble. In short, they become great, or at least greater. Why? Because now that ordinary person 
who's been transported into this greater story than just themselves, they come back and now nothing tempts them the way it used to because they have now seen true beauty and true nobility and true character and true courage. And they've gone and they've lived life to the absolute fullest. And now to come back and just encounter things like little things like fame and power and sex and money, that doesn't tempt them anymore because they've seen what's truly noble and truly courageous. And at this point, that person comes back and nothing bores them anymore because every single second is valued. Every single moment is treasured because somebody sacrificed their life for them. Somebody saved them and they realize, I don't have to be here. It's a gift that I get to enjoy even this very moment. And so every breath becomes more valued in that moment. So nothing tempts these people, nothing bores them, and now nothing scares them because they have seen greater evils than they ever imagined and seen those evils faced down. So they come back and now they live their lives, they live their story in light of this greater story and their minds are set on that and it affects every single thing that they do. I don't know how many of you many years ago saw the movie Saving Private Ryan. But in that movie, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, sacrifices himself to make sure that Private Ryan gets home after Private Ryan's other brothers have been killed in war. And as Captain Miller is dying, he gives a few final words of instruction to Private Ryan that Private Ryan remembers and tries to live out the entire rest of his life. And Captain Miller's dying words to Private Ryan were simply, earn this. Earn a life worthy of the sacrifice that has been given on your behalf. And Private Ryan never, ever forgot those words. He lived an entire life in reflection and in response to those words. And I want to show you a clip from the movie at the end of his life when Private Ryan goes to Captain Miller's grave to share what has meant to live his life in response to those words. Every day, I hope I have earned what you have done for me. Those are the words that Private Ryan offers back in remembrance, in gratitude, and reflection for the sacrifice that had been made on his behalf. Except what we know as followers of Jesus is that none of us on our own can truly earn the sacrifice that has been made for us. None of us on our own have that capacity. So God sent his son Jesus to do that for us. And that is genuine grace. We may not be able to earn that salvation, but we can live our lives in reflection and gratitude of it. Jesus' followers are those who come back week after week after week, Sunday after Sunday, to be reminded and equipped to live into a story story greater than our own. We come back to this story and remember again how Jesus snatched us from death at infinite cost to himself and sacrificed so that we in gratitude might receive a life of grace that we did not earn. And when we begin to think on that and reflect on that, then we begin to get the peace that only God can give. Do you have a peace that passes all understanding? If not, then think about it, dig into it, and look at the life of Jesus and the peace that only Christ can offer. We live in a world desperate for peace. So may the peace of Christ fill our hearts and may we go and share it in a hurting and broken world that others may know the peace that Christ has shared with us.
Amen.